0: This morning, unbeknownst to the audience, the speaker up here was vibrating electrically. And so the pulpit was vibrating just a little bit all the way due to the message. You can tell it. And don't it is. So it was like, you know, okay, uh, I feel more power today. <laughs> you know, it's like something's happening, you know. What draws us together? Adversity draws men together and produces beauty and harmony in life's relationships, just as the cold of winter produces ice flowers on the window panes which vanish with warmth. I like that quote. I couldn't find the person who said it, but it made sense. As I looked at this passage of Scripture, it's a rather long one. We're not going to read it all the way through because it really is quite extensive, but as we, we'll read a number of passages uh, as we look at this tonight so you will not uh, miss the opportunity to look at God's word. So in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7, 4, the apostle has faced enemies at the church at Corinth. They have damaged his relationship with them. He appeals to several things which serve to draw them together if they will open their hearts to him once again. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we will open our hearts to you tonight, that we will come and hear from your word, that as we read the apostle, that we would be drawn together, as the song sang earlier, we would be bound together in love. As we read your word and study it, open our hearts, make them sensitive to your leadership, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Paul faced a number of oppositional forces, factions within the Corinth church. You understand that? You know that's why uh, First and Second Corinthians was written, because the church had problems. Corinth was a problem-filled church. As you look through some of these issues, and I'm going to highlight just the verses and talk about what they say in some of them, one of the things that happens is his opponents claimed to be superior to him in knowledge. You can find that in Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 1 and 2. So they, as they talked about the situation, they acted as if they knew more than they did. We know more about the th- spiritual things than you do. Second, he, he taught that immoral behavior, wa- or some taught, rather, that immoral behavior was of no consequence. This has to do with some of the... Uh, Temples that were there. You look at uh, 5 1 uh, and 6 9 through 13. He deals with those people who have come out of that kind of background where it was okay to go and worship in a temple and do things with your body you wouldn't normally do to worship that person. And so there was a, a split, there was a dichotomy between. If spiritual things are more important than physical things, then I can do whatever with my physical body and it really doesn't matter. Well, it's not true. You know that, and I know it's not true. But that's what they told him. That's what he was teaching against. In 1512, some denied that God had had been raised from the dead, that Jesus was not really raised from the dead. Uh, they denied Paul's authority as an apostle. Second Corinthians 6.18 and 11.5 and 12.11 through 12. They they weren't willing to accept him as an apostle. Uh, Some of the reasons were the ones that have always quoted that, you know, he wasn't alive or he wasn't with Jesus when Jesus' ministry was going on, when Jesus was alive. It wasn't until afterwards that really see him come on scene. There were other matters. But the truth is, there was a power struggle within the church. It happens. And because of that, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And when you read 2 Corinthians, you see that they had largely succeeded in straightening out some of the issues and problems from 1 Corinthians. Um, As you read through it, you understand there's another letter that's floating around in there somewhere, historically, that we don't have that he refers to. But these are the ones that we have. So as he deals with it, there still seems to be some sort of reluctance to fully work with Paul. You know, it's like, eh, okay, you know, I forgive you, but that seems to be where they are. So in Second Corinthians 6.12, he says, we are not holding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. And so you see that the church really wasn't working wholeheartedly with Paul. And Paul appeals to them to fully reconcile together as co-workers in the grace of God. And I think the text suggests that there is a value and a need to reconcile repaired damaged relationships within the church. It is just part and parcel of what grace means to be a part of forgiveness. So, what are the things that draw us together even after conflict? Number one, we'll look at six things tonight. Number one, in 2 Corinthians 6 1, as God's co worker, As we look at that passage of Scripture, those few words really draw us together. They pull us together. The work of the church requires teamwork, co-workers, working together. No one person can claim all the importance. That was what some were trying to do within within the church. But that, he says, really can't happen. We are drawn together because we are co-workers with Christ. We work together. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. You think of the fields that we have here around Oklahoma. It takes a team. You know, you literally, used to take a team, but it takes a group of people to accomplish it. From those who make the seeds usable, from those who plant the seeds, those who keep the Machinery working, those who harvest, those who sell. For all of that to get to us, it takes a group of people. He uses the word building, and that obviously means fitting something together. And we get the image that's very clear about building and different pieces making up a building. In First Thessalonians, he writes, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage your faith. You read through those passages of Scripture, and, and, and even though Paul had quite a personal experience with the Savior and, and extensive education in Hebrew theology, he writes, By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He's not quoting a Hebrew rabbi here. He's talking because he knows God. And he recognizes that his fellow Christians are co-workers in that kingdom. I mean, if anybody could claim a special relationship, wouldn't it be Paul? I mean, oh my gosh, yes. But he doesn't do that. He sees himself along with them as co-workers on a team. That will bring people together when we see ourselves like that, uh, I like to listen, maybe you still do, uh, listen to Jay Vernon McGee. Um, I've listened to him over the years on the radio. Usually it's only, you know, while I was driving, it seemed like he would be on the radio at some Christian station. And, I, you know, I've got his commentaries and everything. He tells a story uh, in a little community where there are three churches on the same corner, the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, and the Baptists. One Sunday night, all the windows were open for air conditioning, and he said they didn't really get along with each other, and the people in Presbyterian church sang the song Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? When they finished, the Methodist sang No, Not One, and then the Baptist said Oh, that will be glory for me. (laughs) J. Vernon McGee goes on to say that all three of those churches ought to sit down together and sing the doxology of praise to God. That's what the world needs. They need to see us as co-workers together, Jesus says when we come together, that's when the world knows that God has sent us. Another thing that will draw us together is that we have received grace. We have received grace, and that's in 2 Corinthians 6, 1b through 2. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped. R.C. Sproul says, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace, the grace of God alone for our salvation. It's difficult for our pride, he says, to rest in grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. Here, I want to offer you something because you need it. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system, he says. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We want to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. But that's obviously not right because we have received the grace of God. And we should recognize that we have received that grace. Again, as co-workers, if, if we do it any other way, it's in vain. Don't receive God's grace in vain. I think that would be (laughs) anti-grace. It would be against grace to do something like that, to to try to accept God's grace on one hand and deny it with the other because I want to do something on my own merit. Grace becomes in vain if we fail the conduit of grace through Jesus alone. The songs that we sang tonight, many of those alluded to the fact that it's only through him that those things are possible. 1 Peter 4, 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God pours out his grace upon us. If God heard us and helped us, we should hear and help one another. Today's text in 2 Corinthians comes just after a long segment It's Second Corinthians five eleven through twenty one, and the subject was on reconciliation. And so he's like, Therefore, because we are co-workers together, we should, because of God's grace that we received, act differently. Second Corinthians five eleven says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Second Corinthians five sixteen through nineteen, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Oh, if we could only do that. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, and old has passed away. He's new. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation that whole part was leading up to the chapter that chapters we looked through tonight in 6 through 7 so the forgiveness of god compels us to forgive others things that draw us together we are co-workers we have received his grace thirdly we are genuine we're authentic Second Corinthians 6.3 says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. We are real. It's a genuine ministry. It's an authentic ministry. It's something that you can look at and tell the difference. There are no intentional stumbling blocks in Paul's ministry. He does not compromise to the gospel. He conducts himself in a way that does not trip up the work of Christ and he's encouraging them to see the same thing that's what should draw us together that we should be genuine and not a stumbling block for anyone else I think one of the greatest hindrances to the success of outreach for the gospel today is the bad example of believers who do not live for the Lord you and I hear that all the time well those people down at church I know this guy and he's a member of your church or or they'll say something about someone that they knew and how they didn't live up to the example that the Bible talks about. And we we rightfully say, I agree with you. People do fail. And that is true, unfortunately. But we all have to do what we can to examine ourselves to be sure we're not putting, as the Bible says, stumbling blocks, blocks before other people. He has foregone some of the rights that he could claim so as not to distract from the gospel itself. I could claim, he even goes through this whole soliloquy, uh, how that he could claim all these things because of who he is. He could ask for money in a certain way, but he works a different way because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to people. So he does that, doesn't accept payment. He doesn't assert that he could take that rightfully because he just doesn't want to be a stumbling block. He encourages the Corinthians to lay down their rights as well in a pursuit of peace, to draw people together. More than anything, he wants people to come to know Christ, and to do that, we have to be authentic, we have to be genuine. There's no such thing as reconciling after a conflict without giving up something of value out of love for the other person, it, it, it's, you know, we call it a win-win situation where both sides get something from it, but maybe both sides give something up to get that. The early church was observed selling land in order, as you remember from Acts, to help those who could not help themselves because of what happened in the book of Acts. Only genuine commitment to Christ in receiving his grace will allow people to do authentic demonstration you you know the story of ananias and Sapphira. they were not authentic they were not genuine they did not do what the others had done in giving up the uh, all the amount of the property it's not what they did they held some back and they lied they were not genuine all sorts of things are tested to prove that they are genuine when you go to the bank or go to the grocery store they take your $20 bill and the cashier takes a little pen and marks across it right, to see if it's authentic if it's genuine why? because some people <laughs> forge bills I read one person who was in the Philippines and, and they weren't using the any special light or a pen or anything they were holding it up to the light looking at it and, and the guy asked well what are you looking for? and they said oh the, the people who, who uh, try to get these bills and, and counterfeit them, they never get the hair quite right. They don't comb it just exactly right. So we memorized what the hair should look like and if it doesn't look like that, we know it's a fake bill. Genuine means being tested. You and I can expect to be tested through what we live and how we live together and that even in itself draws us together. Paul was tested and he came out authentic, he came out genuine things that draw us together we are co-workers, we have received grace we are genuine and fourth we are faithful 2 Corinthians 6 verses 4 through 10, the faithfulness of Paul uh, is in through the severe afflictions that he dealt with a testimony to his love for them and to his faithfulness to God he was willing to put up with it to make sure that people got to hear the message. He was a coworker, but he was more than that. He said he became a servant to them so that they could come to know the gospel. He gave so much of himself because he loved Christ and he loved his church. He became a servant for them. I read a story about faithfulness in battle. John Wesley, you know him, and a theologian of past, and some songs in our hymnal he has written, certainly. He said, give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the world for Christ. It doesn't take many, but it takes people who are faithful, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus did the same thing. He turned the world upside down with his disciples. He made a difference in the world it was December 1944. The German army had ex- had unexpectedly begun to attack. It became what was known as the Battle of the Bulge. The Nazis drove deep behind Allied lines. And in reading about World War II, my dad has books all over the place about. If I want to buy him something, it's a book on you know World War II. In reading about that, we find that there was a reaction from the American troops to this push of the Nazis as they came. One author said, no one thought of these little junctions or roads where we took a stand as anything profound that would hurt the German drive, push in. But it wasn't just one road or junction. He said it was hundreds of them. They stopped at every intersection, they stopped at every bridge, they stopped at every thoroughfare where things crossed, where the, where the Germans were trying to come, and it slowed the German progress so much, the impetus died. And the reason that it died was because so many faithful men made a lot of one-man stands. Many of them gave their lives to make sure that the Germans could not progress any farther. Through the snow and through the fog, without communications, they proved enormously effective beyond anything that the generals of the Americans could think. They just fought and fought and fought. Every road would become their last stand. And for the Apostle Paul, he does something like that. He's faithful in the battles that he fought. And he encourages the others within the church to do the same thing. There are really some examples of faithfulness that you look through in the Gospels and through the writings of Paul. He was great in endurance, implying not just the willingness to wait, but the positivity and the availability to be faithful during hardship. He listed all the things that he had endured because of the gospel in troubles and hardship and distress and beatings and imprisonments and riots. Paul had been beaten numerous times in the ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 to see that. All these reflect the rejection that Christ received himself. He was willing to put up with that because Christ did. You read through his work and you see hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, but yet you see a purity, you see an understanding, you see a, a patience, you see a, a kindness, a, a godly character. As he writes to these people who don't even like him. And the Holy Spirit, I think that quality is born itself out in love as we treat other people graciously. You can't follow God if you don't follow him in love. So you see him writing, and in his writings the the truth comes out, the power of God comes out, but the love of God comes out as he writes to these people. It changes who they are. The weapons of righteousness are are seen in Romans thirteen twelve. He talks about the night is nearly over, the day light is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. First Thessalonians five eight says this. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armor of faith, the love on our chests, and put on the helmet of hope of salvation. And when you look at his life and and you see these examples of faithfulness, you can compare the things in his life to those who were not living up to the gospel. Give me an example. There might be a bad report from what comes from the church, but when you read the apostle, eventually he talks about a good report because they had changed. He talks about this genuineness, and he also, though, does talk about the imposters within the church. We have to be honest about that. He says, I know certain things, but yet some things are unknown to me. I don't know everything. He didn't claim to know everything. He says we're dying, and yet we live in Christ. We're beaten, we're not killed. We're sorrowful, but we're rejoicing. We're poor, and yet we're rich in Christ. I don't have anything, yet I possess everything. And when you read that, you see what happens in his life, how it changes him, how the faithfulness makes him who he is. And he's willing to let that testimony stand up before the people and extol to them the same thing that they should have. So there's this common experience between... The apostle and the people. They, they've dealt with what's happened in First Corinthians. They come to 2 Corinthians. Things are improving. We still need to tweak some stuff and make it a little bit better. And so there are still some times where it's difficult. And so he writes. And we look again at what draws us together. We're co-workers. We've received grace. We are genuine. And we are faithful in the hard times. Fifthly, we're open we are open to our hearts to one another. Our hearts are open to one another, he says. That's Second Corinthians six eleven through 13. We have spoken freely to you, to Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding from us. As fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. He's begging them as if they were his kids. He wants them to see and discover what happens when you open your heart. A number of times he mentions that. That one passage is one, but he mentions six times about this idea of opening their hearts. This one is 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13, but he does another in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For I wrote you out of distress and anguish of heart that with many tears, not to grieve, but to let us know the depth of my love for you. He says it also in 2 Corinthians 4.1, therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He uses that word again. He also uses it in 2 Corinthians 8.16 when he says, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Remember, he can't be there. And so he's working through intermediaries, uh, you know, John Mark and Titus and, and people who are... are expressing to them in a physical sense what he can't, but he's trying to through this letter. We also see it in 2 Corinthians seven fifteen, and he says, Titus, affection for you is greater when he remembers that you all were obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. He's appealing to them again to open their hearts. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 3, make room for us in your heart. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, he goes on. I have said before that you have such a great place in our hearts, he says, that we would live or die with you. I want to be with you, he says. And I want you to understand that's the the depth of my feeling, my heart for you. We cannot close our hearts to one another and expect to glorify god it is a receiving of the grace of god's in vanity it's that making taking god's grace in vain if we do not open our hearts i remember growing up and watching the uh, uh saturday or sunday i can't remember what day it was but it was a wide wide world of sports you remember that I remember watching that. And, and then there was that little clip that came on at the very first part of the wild, wild world of sports. And it was the, the agony of defeat, you know. you know, And there was this picture of a ski jumper that had had missed and he just spun out and you see him spinning and, you know, coming to an end there at the end of that little clip. It doesn't seem to be any apparent, apparent reason. You don't know why it happened. But he tumbled head over heels and bouncing off support structures until he comes to a stop. Years people asked, did anything ever happen to that guy? People would write in and, and ask, you know, what happened on the jump? You know, was it too fast? Was it, you know, was it too slick? What was it that made it happen? And was it fatal? I mean, that, that's really what you want to know. Did he die? Because, of that? you know, he just slides at the end and you don't know. As it, as it turns out, he didn't suffer any, a headache. They said, you know, a few strains or, you know, no bruises even to speak of, but he had a pretty good headache. Isn't it amazing that when you change the course of one small thing, it changes the entire direction of your life? Victory or defeat? Agony of defeat. But it's better to make a change and risk a fatal landing at the end than to do nothing at all, to not open yourself up. But you and I both know that when we open our hearts to God, we will land on our feet, and it will be victory. Things that draw us together, we are co-workers, we've received grace, we are genuine, we are faithful through hard times. Our open hearts are open to one another. And lastly, we are motivated by reverence for God. 2 Corinthians seven one tells us, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's the reason. That's the motivation. We do this out of reverence for God. Uh, You know, maybe people will never accept Paul totally, but they should out of reverence for God. Maybe you won't agree with everybody, but we should try to work together as co-workers out of reverence for God. That's the motivation because of God. Because of the promises that God has made, he says. Grace motivates us. Redemption motivates us. God's love compels us. You see that again in 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love, he says, compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all and those who should live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. He's nailing that issue about not really being sure whether there's a resurrection or not here but he's, but he's also talking about living for Christ. He goes on to say, holiness motivates us to rid ourselves of every contamination of the body and spirit. What's contaminating our spirits? What is it that keeps us from not wholly working together sometimes? We can't mistreat a brother or a sister at the same time, revere God. It's not possible. It just won't work. But these things, he says, have drawn us together. Together. We are co-workers. We have received grace. We are genuine. We are authentic. We are faithful through the hard times. Our hearts are open to one another and we revere God. Those are motivations to make us. Have you ever felt that you never had the heart for something? Maybe you just didn't It didn't have it. You know. You may even say that. I just don't have it in me. I just don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. We've all been there. Late one night, a man had gone to a party, and he had a little bit too much to drink, and he decided he was going to walk home. And as he walked home, he cut through the graveyard and thought it would be a good idea. Unbeknownst to him, somebody had dug a grave, and he fell in it. And it was too deep, and it was too slick, and he couldn't get out. And so he decided, I'll just sit here and sleep it off unbeknownst to another man he came in did the same thing walked in fell in the grave didn't know somebody was in there and he thought well i can't get out i don't know what i'm going to do and he was saying it out loud and the other man said well you might as well give up you'll never get out of here that second man got out right away (laughs) he found the heart and christ energizes us doesn't he to do the things that we didn't think were possible in that moment where we don't seem to have the heart he can give us the heart and make it possible. 2 Corinthians 7 4 says, I've spoken to you with great frankness. I have taken great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. He said he suffered with them. There had been a full, bold, and frank discussion, and he was proud of them. They had worked together, and all those things we talked about, had brought them, drawn them together. The, the trials and the tribulations had bound them together. Paul ends with the second letter of Corinthians with these words, and I want to read them and finish up tonight with this. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven through fourteen. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with that, I end tonight as well. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we call upon your spirit and we along with Paul rejoice we thank you for the restoration we thank you for the encouragement we thank you that we can be a one mind and live in peace help us to engage that with those around us to embrace one another in Christ's love and because of our reverence for you be willing to go the second mile Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that shows us the truth of these words. Now go with us from this place. Energize us. Give us the heart to be of one mind. We pray in your holy name. Amen.